kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on? This is Wrong Real episode 456, podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today marks a slight shift in my overall strategy when it comes to my podcast and my YouTube channel as I try and find more synergies between the two endeavors. My YouTube channel and my podcast will remain separate enterprises, but as I shift into planning more live streams on my channel, I will be reposting the audio here on Wrong Real for those folks who are commuting, at work, etc., and can't be distracted by watching a video. But earlier today, I recorded a live stream with Adam Rakoff and Bill Scurry, and it was an absolute delight to see so many frequent Wrong Real collaborators in the chat room hanging out, talking about flicks. We had Sky Wingfield and Jacob Rivera, Stephen Simpson, Steve Amos, Matthias van der Roost, Fred Schaefer, John Cribbs, Eric Bartlam, Martin Kessler, to name but a few, along with a lot of familiar faces from my inner circle on Twitter, like Joe Duffy and Alexandria Daniels. So if you want to see the full video and get to read all the comments in the chat, I'm including a link to the video in the episode description. But if you're in a position where watching a video is not the most convenient thing right now, here is the audio from today's live stream, 30 Years of James Cameron's The Abyss. It began two years ago in an unfinished nuclear power plant. It became one of the most challenging motion pictures ever made. And on August 9th, the most original adventure of the summer will begin at theaters everywhere. From James Cameron, the writer and director of The Terminator and Aliens, comes The Abyss. God, I hate that bitch. Probably shouldn't have married her then, huh? Hang on, gentlemen. and he sees hate and fear. You have to look with better eyes than that. Talk to me, bud, please. Do you hear me? He's coming up fast. Never backed away from anything in your life, now fight! 
boom. What has happened, everybody? Thanks for joining us today. I had an absolute blast with our Dune live stream a few weeks ago, and I'm planning on doing a hell of a lot more of these broadcasts in the future. Just to give you an idea of the, of the format today, we're going to rant and rave for about 45 minutes, and then we'll be opening up the discussion to anyone in the live stream. Super chat donations, which are always appreciated but not required, will get answered first. But today we're going to be talking about the career of James Cameron, in particular his often overlooked 1989 film, The Abyss, a film of soaring ambition that encountered one or two production difficulties along the way. But with James Cameron returning to the water for the first Avatar sequel, due to be released next year, we'll also be making some predictions on that front as well. But joining me today are two gentlemen that I've recorded with many times in the past on my podcast, Wrong Real. They're filmmakers, they're podcasters, and two of the biggest fanatics for this flick that I know, Adam Rakoff and Bill Scurry. Adam will be leading the charge initially in this conversation, but Bill will be uh, chilling in the chat room. So give him a heads up if you have a great question to ask. But before I start peppering Adam with questions, let's introduce y'all properly. Mr. Rakoff, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, hi, James. Thank you for having me back on your live stream. Yes, I'm uh, a friend of Mr. Hancock's as well as producing partners. Uh, we have a small uh, production company called Rackoff Hancock Animated Productions, and we make short films with animator Bill Plimpton. So if you haven't seen any of, of those works, uh, you can check out Cop Dog on iTunes as well as The Loneliest Stoplight on iTunes. They're both available now. Uh, I also have a production company uh, with actor Matthew Modine, who you may know from Full Metal Jacket and Stranger Things. And uh, I'm an artist and a podcaster and a dad and all of the, uh, a whole lot of different things. So here I am. <laughs> Beautiful. Mr. Scurry, what about you? Well, now with more Scurry, as the uh, <laughs> graphic was very kind to add. I am Bill Scurry. I'm the founder and proprietor of American Caesar Enterprises. I have a budget, which is pretty much just a thing, intellectual property thing. It's not really anything. My point is, is I do podcasts. I write about film. Um, I do a podcast called I Don't Get It, where we look at pop culture trends, uh, usually fixated around uh, the 20-year-old kind of range and see whether or not we, uh, you know, five is 40-year-old men with things that are sold to kids. And um, I just have a video series. I started pushing out the uh, first episode of it, which is coincidentally about the abyss. And, and it was Fucking awesome. I appreciate that. I pre I've been sitting on it for a long time. I'm glad There is a link in the description of this show down below if you want to look like six minutes long, but it basically does in six minutes what we're aiming to do in about 90. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I love the abyss and uh, I think we're all here because I'm here because I want to hear you two, you two guys talk about it. And so I, I, I trust that this place is going to go into some nice weird uh, curly cues and some nice uh, uh, undersea ledges and caves and swim throughs. And the abyss is really worth this kind of discussion. So I can't wait to hear where this goes. Beautiful. Well, before we get fully underway, Adam, I also want to give you a shout out about your beautiful graphic design work and plugging and promoting this, uh, this live stream. So uh, you seem to get a little better with each one that you do. So I'm going to have to just give you a retainer, like a lifelong retainer to do all my thumbnails for all my live streams moving forward. Well, I'm secretly hoping that I can get this in front of, you know, Gail Ann Hurd or James Cameron or somebody over at Fox and maybe they'll use it on their new Blu-ray box cover artwork. Yeah, well, we'll be getting to any and all rumors related to the potential 4K or 8K scan of The Abyss, but let's start at the very beginning before we get into the woods on that. Let's just talk about um, the early days of James Cameron. Like, what? who was James Cameron? How did he get started? And what had he done in his career to date that even opened the doors to making such a colossal, risky, hellish production like The, uh, the Abyss even possible? 
Well, first I'll just make uh, an admission like many, I'm a huge James Cameron fan and very little that he does um, has disappointed me over the years. <laughs> I really just uh, think he's an amazing filmmaker. He's constantly pushing boundaries, mostly technical and visual effects boundaries. And I just think he has uh, a level of perfectionism that is admirable. And a lot of people don't like him as a person. People that don't that work with him don't like him. Uh, but that's not entirely true. I think there's plenty of people that have worked with him and in retrospect have said, wow, he got the best work out of me ever. Like Bill Paxton and guys like that. Exactly. And that's something I used to work for Apple. It's something that I can say was very much like working with Steve Jobs. He was somebody that could be a tyrant and could, be, could really work you crazy hours. But at the end of the day, you were really proud of what you were a part of and, and, and accomplished at, with him sort of uh, at the helm. So I think that he gets a bad rap at times, but it's for the most part, it's all in the name of creating his art. You know, he has a, a goal in mind and a vision in mind and, and he'll do whatever it takes to achieve that. And sometimes that means <laughs> trampling on people who are uh, not doing good work. Sometimes I think that means he, it, it, it's actually affected uh, his marriages uh, which I believe he's been married five times. So it, it, caused, it caused most of his marriages. <laughs> yeah, it, right. causes it causes and ends his right. marriages. Like Homer Simpson and beer, like, you know, <laughs> the cause of and the, and the, uh, the cause of and solution to all of life's right. problems. <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, Cameron was, uh, let's go back in time a little bit because there's okay, just real quick pause. I just yeah. want to say thank you to Cheryl Yera. She just made a donation in the super chat. She says the theatrical release didn't explain the aliens. And that is a hundred percent true. When I first saw the theatrical release on TV, I was completely utterly bewildered and left scratching my head. And I was like 13 and I knew I liked the movie, but I could tell something was just off and it would take me years before I actually finally saw the proper full-length version, which was on Laserdisc with good old Dolby Digital AC3 sound, and that definitely cleared up a lot of things. So we'll definitely be doing the deep dive on the distinctions between the two cuts later in the episode, but I did just want to give you a shout-out and a thank you for the donation. That's very kind of you. But Adam, go on with the uh, go on with the chlorophyll, as uh, Billy <laughs> Madison would have said. Yeah, I mean, just if you go back in time a little bit, uh, Cameron was always fascinated by the ocean. In high school, he was witness to some really incredible um, experiments with breathing, uh, liquid breathing, and he this inspired him to sort of uh, start writing short stories. And he even wrote one about a group of underwater scientists, or a group of scientists working underwater, which is sort of the basis for the abyss. This was obviously uh, uh, two decades prior to uh, actually developing the abyss. But, uh, you know, after he saw Star Wars, well, first of all, he was, he was a truck driver in the mid-70s. He was a real blue-collar, working-class guy. He then saw Star Wars, like many people, and from that point on, he realized, I have to be in the filmmaking business, especially, I think he was especially interested in visual effects, and he was trying to learn anything he could about the process of, of, uh, of how visual effects were created. He would go to the library and look for thesis papers that were written by, by students. He would read books. And of course, this all led to him eventually working uh, for Roger Corman, who was essentially the B-King, B-movie king at the time in the 70s and early 80s for science fiction and horror. 
and he did who launched Jonathan Demme and Scorsese yeah, and Bogdanovich so and Coppola yeah. and he basically launched an entire generation of the world's or at least America's best filmmakers exactly so this led to obviously an opportunity Joe Dante I know Mr. Cripps yeah. who's in the chat would appreciate the Joe Dante shout out exactly yeah holy th- shit Jacob Rivera just dropped 20 bucks in the uh, super chat that's very generous. <laughs> That's incredibly kind. Jacob is doing listening to the wrong reel probably longer than most. He's been trying to get me to monetize my content for the longest time. He's got probably got more ideas on the front even than I do. So Jacob, you finally had an opportunity to throw some cash toward this content. So much obliged. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I mean, he so so back to his sort of early career. He worked on a number of uh, of those Roger Corman films, Battle um, um, Across the Stars, I think it was one of them, where he was a visual effects supervisor. And he was actually working on the sequel to Joe Dante's Piranha, Piranha 2, The Spawning, when the director uh, left the project over creative differences. And he was essentially offered the opportunity to direct the remainder of the film, which of and course- somehow also, that movie he feels also like a James Cameron from. movie. Like if you look at the <laughs> yeah. star- the way she conducts herself, the the topic, the water. Like, it's incredible just how much of like Cameron's DNA is already there in the movie where he wasn't yeah. even originally the director. Right. And he not only did he pick up after another director left the project, but he was also fired towards the end of the, of the production as well. So that that film was fraught with <laughs> problems from the, from the get-go. But it was sort of the first chance for him to get behind that director's chair and work with actors. Prior to this, he was doing matte paintings and model building and all types of other uh, creative um, behind the scenes work. Uh, And this of course uh, was his first work that involved the ocean. (laughs) So it was uh, the beginning of a, you know, 40 year um, career of making movies that were connected to the ocean in some way, shape or form. Uh, of course, he then went on to write and direct The Terminator in 1984, which uh, leading up to that, he was literally starving, living on a friend's <laughs> couch in Los Angeles. He tells one story in an interview where he was so poor at the time when he was developing The Terminator before production began that he, his mother would send him coupons for buy one, get one free Big Macs from McDonald's. He would go to McDonald's, get his free Big Mac. He would eat one that day, have nothing else that day, save the other one for the next day, and that would be his food for two days. So it doesn't really, age well. They don't yeah. age well after like thirty minutes. <laughs> not, not at all. But when you're when you're determined, this shows again his determination. Everything for his art. He wanted to get this film, The Terminator, produced. He wanted to direct it. He had to make sacrifices to do that. He found this production company, Hemdell. Uh, and Gail Ann Hurd, of course, this is where he first began his um, partnership with her. Yeah, rock star and producer. Exactly. So they were able to team up and make this film. But he was essentially, uh, he essentially gave away his rights to the Terminator, the sort of uh, franchise rights, in order to get the film made the way he wanted to make it. And it paid off in the sense that he made his movie his way. It was made, I think, for six and a half million dollars. It went on to make like 90 million at uh, the global box office, which was a huge hit for, I think it was Orion Pictures was the distributor at the time. And uh, and then he was pretty much given a, you know, a huge opportunity to go and make a sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien um, in 1986 with Aliens. And this film, there are stories that are just as horrid as we're about to, to discuss <laughs> with The Abyss. The crew 
despised Cameron on this movie, partially because they they're loyal to Ridley. They were really loyal to Ridley, yeah. and they didn't quite know what Cameron was going for. He was making this action movie that was really, as I've discussed before, it was really sort of a Vietnam War film in space. It was these, you know, American Marines going into a hostile environment, thinking that they're just going to use their the latest technologies and latest weaponry to wipe out the bad guy. And boy, were they in for a surprise when they got there. You know, the guerrilla warfare techniques that the, the Viet, Viet Cong were using is very much analogous to uh, the, the alien, you know, the animalistic creatures that they were fighting. So this film, of course, Aliens, despite the, the challenges in getting it made, was a huge hit. He did have to cut some footage from it, about 20 minutes, I believe, uh, to get it down to the, uh, the, uh, the length that the studio wanted. But this was nominated for seven Oscars, which is a huge deal, and one for Best Visual Effects, among others. His first of several <laughs> uh, five visual effects Oscars that his films would win, I believe. And uh, this basically was an opportunity. Uh, this created the opportunity for him to do whatever he wanted next. And what he wanted more than, more than anything was to revisit that high school story he wrote <laughs> about those scientists working under the, at the bottom of the ocean. But of course, he realized after working in Hollywood for a few years now that people weren't going to be as interested in scientists working at the bottom of the ocean. Um, although that did sort of work with a movie like The Thing, you know, that it's a, which is similar in a lot of regards. But uh, he, you know, he decided let's make them blue collar oil rig workers. That way the audiences will be able to relate to them a little more and feel connected to their, uh, you know, like what if I was down there at the bottom of the ocean? That yeah, could I mean, be it, me. It worked you know? in Alien. People love yeah. watching stories about blue collar skilled labor in these right. otherworldly environments. Yeah, it just, you can put yourself in that environment much more easily than if it's some, like, you know, stately robed people speaking yeah. in lofty, florid language and that sort of thing. Exactly. So that, uh, you know, and I, and I was talking to, uh, to Bill Scurry earlier about this, but, uh, you know, he, he first shopped the script around, or at least the treatment, and studios were, you know, there were a lot of studios excited about this idea of Cameron making this underwater sci-fi action adventure film. But ultimately, he, he stuck with Fox because of the success he had with Aliens. And uh, the, uh, the other studios, of course, knew about it then as a result and were quickly were fast-tracking their own underwater action-adventure movies, and two of which, uh, the Leviathan and Deep Star Six, both beat Cameron to, <laughs> uh, to market by, by six months or so. And unfortunately, both of them were quite poorly received, both critically and... Um, uh, I remember being scared by Leviathan watching on TV, but I, that was, I mean... My my my, uh, my standards. Let's just say we're not as rigorous. Back then. Right. <laughs> so Universal Soldier was the uh, the acme or like the zenith of uh, of entertainment back then. So yeah, yeah. So that's sort of what led up to the um, Cameron's uh, efforts to make this film. Of course, what was unique about this film more than anything was that Cameron wanted to what they call shoot it real for real, which is essentially shooting everything underwater that needed to be shot underwater with real film cameras, with the real actors performing the roles in 
um, underwater. As opposed equipment. to like James Wan just saying, let's just make it all blue and it'll look right. like they're underwater. Exactly. And that will lead to our discussion later how he's essentially doing the same thing with his Avatar 2 sequel, which is largely underwater. He's, he's the first actor, uh, oh, sorry, first director in history to do motion capture of his performers underwater, which, I mean, we'll find out, I'm sure, in the next documentary about that film, how challenging this experience is. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's, Excellent. Uh, it, it, he definitely is constantly looking to break, you know, um, break those boundaries. And it's the first film to ever do sync audio underwater. Uh, over 40% of the footage of the film was shot underwater in giant tanks uh, from an old nuclear power plant, actually. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it really had a number of, uh, of, of firsts just from the production um, process. And of course, we can get in later to the visual effects components that, Absolutely. Uh, that changed, changed the game. Well, before we get to all the technical stuff, because obviously the technical achievements on this film are nothing short of awe-inspiring, but I feel like sometimes his work as a screenwriter gets overlooked. What are your thoughts on James Cameron as a writer overall? You know, all Harlan Ellison controversies <laughs> surrounding the Terminator aside. But more importantly, tell us a little bit about the various sources of inspiration. You've already alluded a little bit to his uh, his high school idea, but from what I understand, he also based a lot of the character Lindsay on producer Gail Ann Hurd. And it's kind of remarkable how she was such a huge part of his life for so many of his best movies. And the marital strife he was experiencing in his own life is mirrored with the characters on the screen. So just talk a little bit about, yeah, just the creative process for James Cameron overall, but specifically, what do you think about his writing ambitions on this movie? Well, I mean, you're right. Uh, Lindsay definitely is, is the Gail and, uh, is Gail and Heard, uh, without a doubt. And they were not only were they going through in a, uh, they were married prior to the beginning of Ellie of, of the abyss being, um, going into production, but they were in the process of getting a divorce throughout the production, which I'm sure added a whole nother <laughs> level of, uh, of stress to the, to his James Cameron uh, eats stress. Yeah, he does because he, she was his producer. She was the one, you know, going in between the studio execs when they were like, what the hell is going on over, you know, down there? Why are you behind yeah, schedule? Like why second are guessing why they're buying more wetsuits. She's like, well, the chlorine to make the water clear is eating the suits and everybody's yeah. body hair is falling off. Like we need more wetsuits. <laughs> right. So she had to somehow, despite their sort of personal fighting that may have been going on, she had to also be defending him and advocating for him throughout this whole process, this whole like five, six month shoot that, that took place in South Carolina. So it must have been a very, a very challenging time for him on many levels, but maybe the divorce was okay because it allowed him to spend 12 to you know, 16 hours a day, day underwater. Yeah, it's like, as long as I'm in the tank, yeah. I don't have to talk to my lawyer. That's right. That's right. So, but yeah, back to his writing. Yeah, this was based on uh, on an idea that he has at, as a as a teenager. But a lot of his films actually were are based on dreams or ideas he had when he was younger, which he always sort of um, imagined he would eventually turn into a movie. I mean, The Terminator is is famously based off of a fever dream that he had in Italy while he was filming Piranha, to the spawning, along with we acknowledge the works of Harlan Ellison. Yes, yes. <laughs> as the movie yes. says. Yes. And also, I have to say that so many filmmakers borrow and 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 steal from others to to realize their own visions. I mean, standing can, on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, it's uh, as long as you do acknowledge it, I think it's okay. I mean, Lucas was very much open about all the 
this sort of influences from mythology that he was he was pulling into Star Wars when he was creating that script. So it's um, it's okay in my opinion as long as you're you're open about it and saying you know I these are the things that inspired me and I just kind of took it to the next level. Yeah, like 2001, which has a very clear. At least it has a connective through line from 2001 to the end of this film where you can tell James Cameron's trying to pay homage to the great master Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. But even with even with The Abyss, I remember hearing once that the um, – which we'll talk about in detail more later, but the, the tidal wave sequence was also a dream he had. He had this sort of nightmarish dream of this tidal wave coming, which is apparently very common. It's a, it's a reoccurring – psychologists talk about how if people have a dream of a tidal wave – a giant wave, like if you're standing on the beach coming towards them, it, it's supposed to symbolize that you're, you know, stress and anxiety, that you're you're feeling overwhelmed. Stanley and Jack Kirby was. did it a couple <laughs> of times. Namer the Submariner it seems like every time he'd get pissed off about something back in the early '60s, he'd launch a giant giant tidal wave <laughs> yeah. at the surface world. It's like, give me the Invisible Woman, or you all have to die. But I think it also just is something that we all can, if we, if you've ever been on a coastline, you can kind of imagine what would you feel if this giant wave was coming towards you it would be the most, you would feel more helpless than you've ever helped, you know, felt in your life. There's nothing you can do about it. It's coming. But uh, yeah, he, I think he wrote though, in this film in particular, I've always enjoyed his writing. He has a great, he does a great job of writing action adventure set pieces that are just phenomenal first of all but he also does a really great job of creating at the core of his movies love stories between two very equal male and female characters that are you know, first like true of all, lies true yeah. lies is basically a, a, a romantic comedy disguised as an action flick exactly and i think all of his films are you know for first and foremost for him uh a romantic uh, love story in some way shape or form and it's just sort of set to the backdrop of something that's sci-fi or adventure or action. And that's obviously what, what we're connecting with is, is that, that love story component. Um, but there are many things that, that we've discussed before about Cameron's film, many themes that run through all of them. He's, he's very obsessed, not just with water, but also with um, the threat of nuclear annihilation, which is a big issue, obviously in the Terminator films, but also in, uh, in in the abyss, especially the special edition, where we really see that uh, again. This is during the height of the Cold War, so we're, this is a time when a lot of people were really very nervous <laughs> about uh, the possibility of something happening with nuclear weapons. So he was tapping into that sort of fear that we all had. But in the abyss, he took it down underwater. So not only do we have the nuclear threat fear, but we also have this underwater fear of drowning, something that's sort of this primitive, primordial fear that we all have. Or just freezing, the hypothermia. Just freezing, yeah, yeah, the darkness, the fear. You know, this film is really a strange combination of of all the best things in storytelling. It's man against man. It's man against nature, you know, with with the hurricane happening and with the, the things that are beyond their control underwater. It's man against himself. In, in more than anything, and it's man against the unknown, the the alien creatures. So he somehow was able to make this layered effect of four different types of con. In, you know, yeah, I think even if you take all the sci-fi elements with, in, regarding the aliens completely out of the movie, it would still stand on its own as a, a great underwater thriller. Maybe not on the level of The Hunt for the Red October or Crimson Tide, but there's a lot of 
there's a lot of meat on that steak yeah. to, choose, to sink your teeth into before you even get to the more far-fetched, far-fetched elements. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he did a, a, an incredible job of, of building up to um, an ending, which again, for a lot of people in the theatrical release was very um, sort of, they kind of caught them off guard. They weren't quite sure what to expect, but I always felt maybe because I knew enough about it going in that it wasn't quite as shocking as I, I, I always knew there was going to be some kind of supernatural or some kind of, of sort of amazing uh, ending to the film because you start off the opening sequence, you see this, this sort of alien looking pod fly past a nuclear submarine causing it to crash. You know right away there's something going on here. It's not just a, you know, a Cold War thriller like the Hunt for Red October. Uh, Hunt for Red October. So um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it's a, it was a constant uh, issue, I think, in the editing room as well, is how are we going to sort of wrap this movie up and keep it under two hours and you know 20 minutes? Absolutely. And, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll definitely be getting in. Well, actually, might as well go ahead and jump ahead to that question. I'm going to rearrange things a bit. Sure. Because yeah. I've heard a lot of conflicting stories about the decisions that ultimately led to the two different cuts of the film. I and this is one of my favorite lines by James Cameron, but he essentially has stated that the best way to reduce a film's running time at sometimes is not to chip away at it here and there, but to take an entire subplot and just remove it entirely. It's just it's much easier to reduce your running time that way. But there's a, an elaborate history of the two different cuts. And first and foremost, what are the pros and cons of the two competing versions? But I've heard that James Cameron, ultimately, it was his decision to remove the wave because the special effects just weren't there yet. But I've also heard the studio is pushing him for a shorter movie. So just walk us through how we arrived at the two different cuts and what do you think are the pros and cons of the two competing versions? Sure. Okay. So basically, uh, you know, this film was way over budget and behind schedule to begin with. So he was already up against uh, a deadline. Uh, I believe it was July 6th. It was early July that they were hoping to release this movie. And now this is the summer of 1989. It was a pretty big summer for movies. We had the, Tim Burton, Batman, we had Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we had Lethal Weapon 2, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which we know is the biggest movie of that year. <laughs> but this movie, The Abyss, was one of the only sort of original films, original blockbuster films, not based on another property, not a sequel. So it was, for a lot of people, really exciting. People were anticipating it especially after the success of Aliens and, and Terminator. So Cameron was way under the gun to get this thing done for a summer release. This was a big summer movie for Fox. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, the, uh, the visual effects at the time were a huge constraint for him. He was tinkering around with the film and the big ending with the tidal waves that was in the original script and cut and was fully part of what he intended to release. He just wasn't happy, as you mentioned, with the the results that industrial light and magic were coming up to uh, coming up with they they were essentially using like a like a plastic wave that they were going to film and do and, and animate somehow and this just wasn't you know Cameron the perfectionist wasn't happy with that and so I think as soon as he realized that he was so they I mean they pushed it to to, to August 9th that was the new release date to give him a little more time to tinker with it and try to make it as as good as it could be. But as soon as he realized that he couldn't make that effect sequence at the end of the movie look the way he wanted to in his head, uh, he basically made the decision, I don't want people to see it that way, so I'm going to you know, excise this whole subplot. And that sort of was a, 
a chain react a backwards chain reaction. So anything that led up to that, the whole Cold War subplot with the buildup of the Soviet, you know, um, submarines and and the newsreel yeah, footage, like a, a reverse domino effect going yeah. backwards through the story, where just it, you remove all these little pieces. It took I think twenty minutes or so was just immediately able to be cut down, and that was huge for him because it allowed him to then just refocus his energies on the rest of the film. Yeah, it's not that. the best solution, but it was right. a solution. It was a solution that was with the time constraint that he had. He did, uh, and one thing that I realized, didn't realize originally, but he did actually have Final Cut or a type of Final Cut at this time in his career, but it wasn't a Final Cut where he can make the movie as long as he wanted it. He, it was a Final Cut that said, you can do whatever you want as long as it's two hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> Essentially, he could make his movie the way he wanted to make it, but they still wanted for you know for marketing and business purposes to be able to show X number of screenings. Yeah, you get one more screening per day in there. So. Exactly. So, and I think it ended up, you know, he ended up hitting that uh, that mark, or maybe just a few minutes longer. So the the decision was ultimately his. In fact, there were was one old article I found that said that many of the uh, uh, executives at Fox were the ones who were shocked and almost dismayed by the fact that, that he was cutting the climax of his movie. I mean, they knew from the script, this was the big reveal. It was kind of a, a day the earth. It's the money shot. Still. Yeah. It's like, it's like the parting of the Red Seas and the 10 commandments. Yeah. And so they were just like, what is he doing that? You know, he's cutting off the whole, the, the entire ending of the movie. So it, but for Cameron, it was a way of putting out a version of the movie, at least to a standard that he was happy with at the time because he couldn't push back any longer. And he essentially, I would say it's like what they say with any art or any filmmaker. They don't, uh, they, they, he just kind of abandoned the movie. He didn't finish it per se. He abandoned it and let it go out into the world as it, as is, you know, on August 9th, 1989, but always with the idea that he would hopefully revisit it at some point when the technology sort of caught up to the visions uh, that he had in his head. So it's, it's uh, and of course, as you mentioned, 1993, so about four years later, after the huge success of Terminator 2, he was able to um, sign a $500 million development deal with Fox. That's a good deal. <laughs> and something like 500000 I may be remembering incorrectly, was allocated within that budget for him to complete the abyss in its entirety the way he originally intended to do so and which included having ILM go back and redo the ocean some of the ocean scenes uh, they it even, looks fucking yeah. gorgeous i mean you watch it now and this is 26 years later or 30 years later i mean well i guess yeah, well, actions and special yeah. effects well, 26 years later yeah. but the wave looks incredible it looks in, i mean it looks almost tangible yeah yeah and and they even had a short theatrical release a lot of people didn't realize this but it did play in New York and LA for I, I'm not quite sure how long, but for a couple of weeks maybe. Probably um, coincided with like the Laserdisc release. Exactly. Yeah, it was probably a marketing you know uh, you know effort to sort of announce. But at this point, it was only available on Laserdisc, so it was a big push by Cameron to say Laserdisc is the way to see this movie widescreen, THX, as you said, AC3. If you're gonna watch this, watch it this way. I had an entire box of Laserdiscs. <laughs> I remember I spent two hundred dollars on getting the Wild Bunch on Laserdisc, like and like two years later. DVD I was like oh maybe I could have saved that <laughs> yeah, but yeah. for a brief shining moment I had a nice look but luckily my school library at University of Virginia the Clemens library had thousands of laser discs so 
I at least yeah. got my money's worth from the player by being able to borrow so many great movies. But that's yeah. another topic for another day. No, yeah. I mean, it, but it, it at the time, it was the best. And, and in fact, many people don't even realize this, but Laserdisc was uh, still better quality than DVD. It had less compression. It was a different compression format. So DVD was more convenient in that they could fit more on a smaller disc and you didn't have to but flip them. They were crummy at first. You had to like flip them. I mean, some yeah. early DVDs sucked. Yeah, exactly. So even though DVD popped up, uh, you know, like you said, a couple years later, uh, Laserdisc for for a long time was still arguably the, the format, format for cinephiles, uh, you know, until Blu-ray essentially came along. It was still considered the the best quality way to watch a film in your home. And they just look gorgeous. They're like they're heavy and they're thick. Yeah. It's like records on steroids. Like, <laughs> exactly. uh, I, I loved them. And then it came out on VHS. They the Fox uh, introduced the Fox widescreen series VHS. They were these big gold clamshell packages, and they released True Lies and The Abyss in widescreen and the special edition. That was in '96. So that's when I actually first saw the special edition. Was in 1996 on the widescreen VHS uh, edition, and uh, yeah, I was just floored by it. I was like, wow. I mean, I had seen I had the original VHS tape from that came out uh, in 1990. And I'd watched it dozens of times, but as soon as I saw that special edition, I was like, "This is the version that I'm the only version I'm watching." <laughs> going yeah, I've watched it. I watched it theatrical cut plenty of times on HBO, pan and scan, low res. I will never watch that version again. I, I, I just, I, I need so a little more clarity in my in, yeah. my in the final thirty minutes. But we've been dancing around this topic for a while, but now I think it's time, finally time to start sinking our teeth into the, the hell of making this movie. Cause I feel like whether you're talking about the Island of Dr. Moreau or Fitzcarraldo or apocalypse. Now film history is littered with these legendary difficult productions. So I just, I want you to describe what is a typical day in the life of the cast and crew of the abyss, especially when they're shooting in tank a, because it seems like from watching dailies upside down and, you know, decompressing. And I mean, just, just, just walk us through what Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio and James Cameron would experience on a typical, on a typical day early in the shoot. Well, I wasn't there, <laughs> but I obviously have watched a lot of documentaries and read a lot of, uh, of, of articles about this over the years. And, and, it was pretty well documented. In fact, there's a, a, a 60 minute documentary called Under Pressure, Making the Abyss, which is available on, it, it was first on the Laserdisc, but it's also on the DVD, which was released in 2000. But it's the double DVD. If you the buy the single disc, DVD, yeah. it's not there, but yeah, the double one. And it's still available. It's If you watch it on your widescreen TV or HDTV, you're gonna be disappointed by the format, but at least the documentary is there. At least it's, at least it's there. And it's actually something that Cameron commissioned himself for the Laserdisc release, he was, it's almost like he, he, he wanted to revisit the hell and show the world what he went through to make this movie. Um, most directors, I think, would just be like, I, can't, I don't ever want to talk about this again. In fact, that's what happened with some of the cast members. So. Yeah, Ed Harris is notoriously tight-lipped. Yeah, so is Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. She um, has never spoken about it since uh, the, you know, kind of press junket promotional tour that they had uh, that summer. Yeah, when, but, you're, uh, when, you're, when your lead actress has having to scream in the director's face, we are not animals, <laughs> you, you probably have crossed a line of some kind. Yeah, but like, you know, it, it, essentially everything that could go wrong went wrong. They were, they were shooting this giant um, nuclear re, uh, tank, you know, that they, enclosure, and they filled it with, you know, million, I, I, don't, mean, I don't even know how many, 
gallons of water. It was massive. They built the entire deep core rig inside this and filled it with water, covered it with these black beads, and then a tarp on top of that because it needed to make it look like it was underwater, 2,000 feet underwater. Yeah, like with the beads, it would, it would block out some light, but if you needed to get to the surface quickly, it wouldn't prevent you from reaching the surface. Right, you could surface and break through and get yeah. air if there was an emergency. So it was a smart solution. But here you have you know 25, perhaps, crew members at a time and your lead actors all in diving suits underwater, acting underwater, filming these scenes and doing their dialogue, sync dialogue, into microphones in their helmets that were you know aircraft you know um, quality uh, microphones that they use you know in the military uh, so they could record this audio and of course there's also these loud um, uh, popping sounds from the uh, the regulators you know, the, yeah that they had to cut out you know in between every other word practically in post-production in the sound design uh, so that you're not hearing that but yeah, I mean, but you hear it in under pressure when James Cameron, uh, he would have the only microphone for like giving instructions to cast and crew, and you could just hear it's I mean, even in like an hour of watching the documentary, you start to dread that sound. It's the most annoying yeah. sound you've ever yeah. fucking heard. But like some of it was just an inconvenience, but other stuff was there, there were actual moments where these actors could have died. And Ed Harris had a moment like that where he they they actually shot the scene where he's going down the trench. Um, sideways uh, yep. and sort of pulled him along with a cord and shot it sideways so it looked like because the obviously this this tank wasn't deep enough to shoot him actually going down and physically your body just wouldn't be able to take yeah, it and, yeah exactly so they shot it sideways and he was and he was wearing a, you know a helmet with that liquid pink goo um, yeah. fluid that he wasn't really breathing he had to hold his breath between every take then immediately drain the liquid and get a regulator on his mouth so he could breathe some air in between takes so he's holding his breath and his sort of i guess diver support diver got tangled up on and something and couldn't get to him between takes and he was like bugging out he couldn't breathe and then someone ran over got him a regulator someone out the can't uh, an assistant got him a regular but put it in upside down by accident causing him to breathe in too much uh, uh, i guess he had, uh, apparently uh, got a lot of water with the yeah, air water, he got he got right. some air but he also was choking to death exactly and so finally the cameraman actually pushed this guy aside pulled that that regular uh, upside down regular out of his mouth and shoved the uh one in his mouth and gave him some air but apparently this really scarred ed harris this this experience he, he has said in in interviews since that he just broke down crying on the on the drive home that night and he just he he really thought this was it you know, you're here. You are in the dark, underwater. No, you can't communicate to get help. It's it must have been a harrowing experience. But um, there, I mean, there were, as I mentioned, there were other little things, like you said, the the chlorine in the tanks was bleaching everyone's hair white and was causing, you know, um, all their body uh, hair to fall out. Yeah, chemical <laughs> burns on their yeah. skin. So they had to get the chlorine levels right. Uh, th this is like the whole crew. Uh, there were decompression problems where. The actors didn't stay down for, for more than a couple hours, but Cameron was down sometimes 12 hours a day. So he would have to sit and watch dailies underwater for like three hours while he decompressed 
And so you can when you do it sometimes upside down to alleviate the pain and tension in his shoulders because like all the gear and all the equipment was so heavy, right? Like he was getting almost like spinal compression problems. Yeah, he had to like hang onto like a, a, a cord or a cable, and maybe he laid sideways or something. I'm not sure, but yeah, just there, to they, alleviate the pain, they did different tricks to kind of help him. But yeah, but I mean, Bill Scurry pointed this out on Twitter earlier how it sucked to be in the casting crew. However, no matter what unimaginable hardship physically you were enduring. James Cameron was at least doing the equal, if not more. He was, and many crew members who have talked about the film after the fact have said just that, that he was doing everything that they were doing and sometimes two to three times more and working longer hours. And he, he would never ask anyone, actor or crew member, to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. So you have to respect that. You have to respect that he wasn't just being a tyrant and demanding people to do this and that. Yeah, but he, he went in Video like, Village with a, a monitor and a, yeah. and a latte screaming at people with like a bullhorn. He was actually in the thick of things. Exactly. And some directors say that now they won't, even like Christopher Nolan won't use a Video Village because he feels that that, that creates a sense that he's sort of better than the rest of the crew. So what he'll do is just stand next to the camera and be there right with his actors and watch them. And by doing that, it kind of democratizes the, the filmmaking experience. It's smart. Yeah, I remember when yeah. I worked on Hannibal, the Ridley Scott film, gaining even temporary access to Video Video Village was like going into like the VIP room in a club, like, ooh, I'm going into Video Village. But it definitely creates a, a sense of uh, us versus them. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it was a, it was a bad, uh, difficult shoot for that. For that 40% of the movie that was shot underwater, uh, you know, of course, they eventually moved to interiors and miniature shoots and things like that. that but they're were still not, flooding sets and yeah, uh, doing all sorts of horrible, dangerous things. People were just strung out. They were tired. They, you know, Michael Bean uh, reported that even though he was good friends with, with Cameron from working on The Abyss and Aliens, uh, sorry, yeah, um, Terminator and Aliens prior to this, he said he was there for five months but only worked like three weeks or something yeah. like that. So, but that's not uncommon on a big, a film. lot of hurry up and wait. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it was a, a difficult shoot to say the least, but um, you know, he wanted to do something that had never been done. It, it was the first film to shoot sync dialogue underwater. As I mentioned, it was also the first film to attempt uh, a computer generated um, sequence that, had a character essentially, the pseudopod water tentacle that interacted with physical objects and actors on And it still looks killer to this day. Yeah, it's it's an amazing sequence and it really did change the course of of filmmaking as a Without result. Without a doubt. Well hey we only got a couple of minutes before I open yeah. up the conversation everybody. So real quick, I just want you to put on your your thinking cap or your 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 powers of prophecy because between the abyss, Titanic his documentaries, Ghost of the Abyss and Aliens of the Deep, and Piranha 2, as I mentioned. Obviously, James Cameron has got a thing for the water. I think in 2012, he set the record for the deepest solo dive in, in history. <laughs> yeah. What can you tell us about Avatar 2, and do you have any predictions or theories regarding that that you would like to share? Well, Avatar 2 uh, slated currently for December 18th, 2020, so we're you know looking at you know, a year and a half away, yep. about a little more. Comes a month uh, after Dune. Yeah, it's completed. It's completely shot at this point. All the motion capture photography. I think they're doing some of the additional photography in New Zealand right now. Um, but it, as I mentioned, it's the first film to do motion capture with live actors underwater. So what that means and what that will look like 
we'll, we'll, soon, we'll soon find out. But the big thing for me is that um, Cameron, of course, not wanting to just leave. You know, I mean, the, the 3D breakthrough that was the first Avatar is probably the most memorable part of that film for me. It's just the, it was like looking through this, a window. It was not about things popping out of you. It was about the depth that felt like you were looking through a window into another world. And it was such a, a mesmerizing experience on the big on a big screen. But he's had 10 years now to improve on that. And, and you can see those improvements in Alita Battle Angel. I went to see it in a really nice 3D screen here. And I hate 3D. I fucking despise 3D. However, for Alita Battle Angel, he made me a he made me a believer. Well, and this is what he's I don't know if uh, if you've heard this, but Lightstorm Entertainment, his company, partnered and has been partnering with Christie Digital um, for for years now to develop the first RGB laser projection system, which is a new type of projection system that Avatar 2 will implement the first film. It will not require 3D glasses. You will be able to see absolutely, it says crystalline, crystalline clear images in the most you know, three-dimensional way you've ever seen without having anything to wear on your head or look through. So that alone may be the thing that makes this movie explode. You know, people. Well, I'll still have to wear my curious. new distraction-free hat. I want to give you oh, yeah. a, an image of this. See how it's got like horse blinders on the side. Yeah. It's a cap I ordered from Germany for movies. Now people use it in offices to keep the peripheral peripheral vision like oh, out of kind of out of out of sight, out of mind. But I've got this now to block out cell phones, so I'll never see the glow of anyone's cell phone ever again. So no matter what the format will be, I'll be wearing my new super cool visor <laughs> to protect me from well, my it'll be much movie. easier. You won't have to look have like, screen, <laughs> rocking out his. Scuba gear. All right. Well, it is 245. So, okay. as promised, we're going to start opening things up to uh, a wider conversation with everyone in the chat. Scurry's got some experience with some underwater exploration. So, I can't think of a better person to handle some of this. So, I've got some follow up questions for both Adam and Bill. But first and foremost, Bill, welcome back to the chat. What have y'all been talking about in the chat room? I've been trying to jump in and out when I can, but I, I've missed the majority of it. Well, we had a great time talking a lot of things here. Yeah, really good time. Yeah, and I want to heal this show. But I, you know, like getting really a kind of real one. I don't know. <laughs> Is this better? Is this going to work better? Uh, I, I think the, the goggles should at least stay in, in the better. in the short term. Yeah. So. We've had a good time. Uh, we've had a good time here chatting. Matthias is in the chat. All right, so yeah, quick shout out. There are so many people here that I've collaborated with or just who create content that I watch, but obviously Matthias van der Roos, Joe Duffy, Steve Amos, John Gribbs. I mean, so many familiar faces. And uh, Grevlane, I don't know if I know Grevlane, but Grevlane, welcome to the chat. So I just want to say hello. Gidget yeah, uh, Gidget, who I've been interacting with for years on Twitter. Amos, so. you got Amos, Joe Duffy, you got Fred uh, uh, F.C. Schaefer, as you know very well, Film and Vinyl's here. Oh, uh, Film and Vinyl, very cool. Alexandria, very nice. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a full house. This is pretty good. Randall's in here. Yeah, beautiful. Lane. So many people I know, some I don't. But we're having a good time here. Thank you for the yes, the Dune ring. Thank you very much for noticing that, uh, Randall. I appreciate that. You know, but you got to hold it like eyes? this, like like Paul. <laughs> <laughs> the ducal sigil of House Atreides. Uh oh. <laughs> oh, is Adam getting a toy? Yeah, he's about to blow me out of the water. Adam, you just retrieve a, a toy to, to yeah, out-geek Kill Speaking of Dune, I, I found something in storage. I used to, uh, back in the day, collect a lot of non-sport trading cards. And I found in my uh, storage a, uh, a sealed box of Dune unopened. cards. Unopened. <laughs> and here you go. Look, you got the wax packs with bubble gum still in them. <laughs> wow. 
It tastes like Harkonnens. That's I was, great. I was that kid who didn't open anything. He saved everything in packaging. That's oh intense. God, that's insane. That's crazy. All right. Well, yeah. Mrs. Scurry, the spotlight is now yours. What do you got for us? Uh, well, what do you want to hear? You want to hear what was going on in the chat? Or I know. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll start. Well, I know Steve Amos sent you some questions ahead of time. Since uh, Steve Amos, who's a contributor to Film Eighty Nine, a great website as well as a great podcast. Let's start with what uh, whatever he had to say. Yeah, Steve came up with some great questions, and um, I mean, you guys alluded to it—the idea of the um, people doing method acting, where they were—they didn't have to imagine what it's like to drown because they were actually busy drowning. But uh, Steve writes as follows: I uh, I think that the resuscitation scene is one of the most intense moments in film history, especially considering Harris was acting directly at the camera, not to Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio for much of it. Do you agree that it wasn't Bean that deserved the Oscar nod or the potential Oscar nod? That it was actually Ed Harris. I think it's the best performance of Ed Harris's career. I mean, it's a st- he's done so much great stuff, but it is, I think also dramatically, it might be the best scene that James Cameron has ever constructed, just from a purely dramatic standpoint with great dialogue, great actors doing their thing, totally invested. But a- Adam, what do you think? I-, I honestly think all three of them delivered Oscar-worthy performances. I think they, they-, they put everything they had into these roles. And... You know, and that was, I, I really do give a lot of credit to Cameron pushing them just like Kubrick would do to get the best possible performance out of them, take after take after take. They're all extremely talented actors, but I think and that- And Antonia, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonia was also physically undressed, which made it yes. intensely awkward for her repeatedly as Ed Harris is bumping on her chest. And Ed Harris was being rather violent with her. You know, they were, you know, they were doing the paddles to try to shock her back to life, slapping her face back and forth. So without a doubt, that 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 scene could be an Oscar scene for the two of them. But there I agree too that Michael Bean really did um, if he had won an Oscar, he would have been a huge leading man after that movie. It would have or if this film had been a blockbuster like T2 was, Michael Bean would have just gone on to, I mean, he did go on to shoot Navy SEALs with, with Charlie Sheen. Yeah. So. It's a remarkable performance. I mean, just seeing him like slashing his forearm. Yeah. <laughs> people are out of view, like just seeing him come unspooled. I mean, he's, he's pretty, he's wound pretty tightly from, from the, from word go, <laughs> but he just starts yeah. disintegrating before our eyes over the course of the film. And man, that dude's intensity. I absolutely love what? it. But one of the weirdest stories I ever heard in my life behind the scenes of making a movie some horror movie that Michael Bean was on and uh, he lied and said that his mother was dead because he wanted to take like a couple of days off to go on some bender. And somebody came to his trailer and asked him like, you know, to, to express their condolences. And he's like, my mother isn't dead. You dope. And like lean forward and bit the person. Like he's a complete maniac, but um, the, you can feel it on the screen in the abyss. I do think though, that the interesting thing about his performance, Michael's performance is that he, yes, he's the antagonist, but he's not really a bad guy per se. He's not an evil person. He was sick with the water pressure sickness. He was under orders uh, during a Cold War buildup that he felt after being cut off from his chain of command that it was up to him to potentially save, you know, the world. The, the world. You know, he he thought in his head, and I think in many ways, yeah, every villain, villain is the hero of their own exactly. story. Exactly. But he really wasn't. Again, until the very until that moon pool battle between Ed Harris and him, he didn't really hurt anybody per se. Yes, he did go off under orders to uh, to retrieve the nuclear warhead, which in turn caused the tether 
to pull the whole thing over the cliff and then and seven guys on the crew died so he did cause you know inadvertently um people to be killed but he wasn't going around and shooting people on yeah, he wasn't rig. a mustache twirling villain at least yeah. initially at but least bill initially, since yeah. you've done some diving what are the symptoms that he's experiencing initially when we start seeing like his hand shaking and he, he's claiming that he's been cleared physically but what are those risks that a diver faces well i mean i think that's bullshit to be honest with you i the idea that you would um have pressure sickness isn't something i've ever heard of now the thing is i just do conventional diving which is a, a tank of um air not oxygen but air on your back you know the real danger of diving is something called nitrogen narcosis. And it has more to do with the fact that um, you lose, um, it's because of the gas mixture, I don't want to get too nerdy about it, the gas mixture going into your body kind of chokes you off for a little, either too much oxygen or not enough, I forget which one it is, but the idea, you start to lose sense. And when you're underwater, you're already disoriented anyway. And you know, if you're sort of poisoning your brain a little bit with a gas, you don't even know that you're making bad decisions. And that's how a lot of people drown. I've heard of that happening. And obviously, you know, there's also decompression sickness, but that is more of a physical thing. That's nitrogen bubbles forming in your blood. The I've bends. never heard. Of, yeah, the bends. I've never heard of anything about you know, like somebody cutting their hand under a table. <laughs> I don't. You know, I the, the idea of like the, the whole deep drilling thing is a whole separate set of like occupational issues that are real, I'm sure. But I just don't know shit about those. But I, I don't know. I mean, Cameron could have made that up just as like a you I, know a, a nice bugaboo for his bad guy to have. I always was uh, was under the impression the reason why that was a concern in this film setting was that they did something unique in that they they pressurized the air in the station in deep core to to match the pressure on the outs uh, on the water and oh, yeah. that's the issue why they had to obviously um, decompress because normally you would be in a pressurized like submarine you're in a pressurized submarine that is. Um, so pressurized for surface. Yeah. So you don't need the decompression, but when you're in a, and that's why they could have the moon pool, right? Because it was, you could have the air above it like that. So it's just, I think it had to do with the way they, the concept of, of the deep core station being pressurized at the, at the bottom of the, of the ocean to, to match the exterior pressure. But uh, again, I'm not a scientist, so. <laughs> now, James, you mentioned something about Cameron working harder than anybody else on the set. The idea, you know, I, th I think you're intimating, Adam, that Cameron at the end of the day, because he spent so much time underwater, you know, you have to decompress. And conventionally, when you're diving at, con at conventional levels, you know, you do three minutes at 15 to 20 feet, and that's it. You hang in the water column, you just stay there, and you do something called off-gassing where your body releases nitrogen out through your breath. You know, you're just, it's a natural thing. Cameron stayed underwater so long all day, he would have to decompress for close to like an hour, 90 minutes, two hours. So they said that they actually built, he was actually doing his dailies in the water while he was <laughs> upside down off-gassing at like 20 or 30 feet, uh, you know, because he just had soaked up so much, like the, the hazard of what he dealt with his body, the game he was playing with his health was just kind of amazing. And that's like, again, knowing a little bit of what I play with in terms of mortality every now and then is one thing. Right. But Cameron just did that. He would punch in every day and just spend fucking 14, 15 hours underwater, which the human body is not designed to do. Right. And even he, there was even a quote he put out where he said something like for, for every, hour you guys are trying to pick out what magazine to read i'm underwater getting ready for the day's shoot you know yeah. so he there's a there's a little animosity i could you know between uh um him and the crew in that respect or, or the actor but also like, a lot of gallows humor when people making yeah. t-shirts with all these like like these play on words when it came to the name and also people joking about as you mentioned like diver's delight and stuff like that so it seems like on any given day it was awful 
but you could uh, gallus humor can get you through a lot a lot a lot of hardship as well so wait, I, I, I steve amos has a few more questions i think right away yeah, so in addition, you know it's a tangent to that first question about the resuscitation scene and this is one that i actually believe in or at least I, I it's worth asking has cameron ever made a more human film and i think that i i will add my own editorial on this one is that cameron comes across as an aloof sort of very detached kind of guy, intellectual, a bit of a technician, you know, maybe it's that that Ontario upbringing, that sort of Canadian thing. He doesn't just rip with intensity like some other people do. So I think his work could read as cold. I mean, so does this, does that mean anything to you? Either Cameron's disposition or this movie having more blood in it? Avatar feels colder emotionally and the characters feel more removed. But I would agree that when it comes, I mean, we were having a little discussion earlier about what's the best ensemble cast you've ever worked with. And in terms of just a pack of badasses doing incredible things, obviously Aliens is quite an ensemble. But when it comes to rich characters, very human characters who don't have machine guns and who don't have like all these superhuman abilities, I, I do think that the Abyss, just little things like the scene where uh, what's the name of the uh, the character with the uh, the cowboy hat? She's like something like one night stands or one, one night, night standing. Yeah, just one yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> but when she's in her submersible, listening to country music, and they're dragging the station, and they're all singing together, that might be the warmest moment that James Cameron has ever shot. And that's actually a cut scene. Uh, there's only one shot of that in the theatrical uh, when the the submersible comes towards the camera. And you can hear just her singing for us for like a split second. But the remaining, the, the shots before and after where they're all getting in on it, kind of having a good time, that was all part of the special edition. So it was funny. Also, I love how her character, when uh, she first sees uh, Lindsay, she makes a little gagging motion. Because early on in the movie, some people might say, like, man, James Cameron's being a little mean to this Lindsay character because she gets called bitch, I think, 20 times in the first like 10 minutes. <laughs> but yeah. obviously, she designed the entire rig. She's the smartest scientist in the movie. Like, she has a lot of other qualities that I think balance out all the insults. But I liked how it wasn't just the dude saying, oh my God, like queen bitch, blah, blah, blah. You see uh, One Night Stand also going to, when she's having to be polite to her. So I just thought that was an interesting little touch. All right. How about this one? Cribs says, and we were chatting about this one a little bit in the, in the chat was, um, actually, I don't know this movie, Bassan's Big Blue, The Abyss versus uh, uh, Jim Cameron's, I mean, Jim Cameron's Abyss versus Bassan's Big Blue. What do you think about that? I'm horrified to acknowledge that I've not seen The Big Blue yet. I've watched, okay. I think Subway is the earliest Luc Besson film that I've seen. And I really enjoyed Subway. It's fucking wild. And I've been, it's been on my to-do list for like 23 years. But I can't speak to it. But Mr. Cribs, you're in the chat. Lay it on us. What do you yeah. prefer? Do you prefer Big Blue or do you prefer The Abyss? I think we've got like a 20, maybe a couple second delay. I haven't seen it either. I'm, I'm ashamed as well. Yeah, and it's even it's dangerous territory even mentioning Luke Besson since he's uh, I think he's on trial for some criminal assault charges and so on and so forth. So uh, I think he was. Yeah. I think he was. Uh, I think he, I don't. I don't know. I thought I heard that they dropped all the charges. He but. has a flick coming out this summer, but yeah. I just know. Yeah, he is. Uh, it is quicksand to even discuss <laughs> Luke Besson yeah. right now. But um, yeah, I definitely be putting Big Blue in the list. But sadly, I cannot answer that question. He, he got he got us with that one. All right, I, I got one. This this comes from Bill S. Uh, in the chat room. He he asks, um, the gap between uh, Titanic and Avatar is this like amazing 
vacancy in a man's career. You know, I don't know if any other filmmaker voluntarily kind of bugged out of the industry. For we made long. two feature-length documentaries in that time, yeah. but, but, no, but, no, but no narrative movies. But it's like the obsession this guy made with jumping into like the Marianas Trench. It's like it was vanity at that point. He was making documentaries that were mostly about his exploits, about the things he wanted to cover. And he built these submersibles by himself. He was this submarine designer. He kind of went crazy. But I mean, it's a, like a big risk, especially if you had the biggest hit in Hollywood at that time and you decide to get the fuck out you just you just like peace out of the business how who else could have done something like that not that he knew kubrick. that yeah kubrick yeah but i mean kubrick i mean kubrick was more idiosyncratic than cameron cameron just seems so suburban I, 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 you know? I think that uh, and people have said this cameron in another life would have been a scientist he he um he was i think he's part the uh, one uh, someone once said he's half scientist half artist and that's a very that's two different sides of the brain. You know, for them yeah, to work like Arthur C. In, Clark persona. So those to sync together in such a good you know, so so effectively is a rare thing. And I think he just felt like, well, I had this massive hit. Now I can go off and do the stuff I really always wanted to do, you know, explore the ocean, look for sunken boats and and use my, you know, technology to capture all this on film. I, I think it was just him saying how do I top this, first of all? What do I do to top this? I, mean, I think and, that streak from Terminator to True Lies, that's a 10-year streak, yeah. obviously as Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, and True Lies, that's as good a 10-year period as any filmmaker in the time that I've been alive on this planet. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of directors out there who've had like great 10-year hot streaks, but once you've done that 10-year hot streak, that's, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm in the minority or the majority, but I don't like Titanic, so I don't even talk, talk about Titanic. But I think that 10-year period of his is very tough to match or equal. And as an artist, it's got to be kind of crippling in some ways. He did do some things, though, other than the, the documentaries. I mean, there was that show like he Solaris, spirited. Solaris with Steven Soderbergh right, and things like Dark that. Right, Dark Angel, that TV series yeah. with Eliza Dushku. Well, he mean, wasn't he was, in the driver's seat for a while. No, but he was sort of overseeing it on a you know executive producer level. Um, and he was, you know, he was tempted on several occasions to direct other projects that he ended up not doing. I mean, he had his Spider-Man script with yep. Sam Raimi. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's get did. into that. That's worth talking about. Yeah, I mean, script. he... he, he they thought they thought his script was too violent, really, and more than anything, that it was too dark, too violent. And this is long before the Dark Knight or any before any of the the darker films came out. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that could have happened, right? That could have been his next film if the studio had greenlit the script that he writ had written, um, which I've read a little bit of it, and it's pretty interesting. Like it, it starts off really bold. Like it's it would I still to this day wonder what his version of that, of uh, Spider-Man would have been like. Oh, Dr. Octopus was the villain, I think, in that one? I think so, yeah, in the original. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and that was, I'm guessing that was early 90s, is that when it was, after Terminator, mid-90s, 95, was, is that? Around? Yeah, I think he had early, he had been toying with, the, with like drafts for many years, but um, it was still um, something that they were uh, looking to potentially make by the end of, by after, after Titanic's release, it was still something that his script was at the top of a list of ones that they really were considering. And some of the things actually did carry over. It was Cameron's idea that he would have organic web shooters, yeah. that it yeah. would be part of his biology, which is such a Cameron concept if you think about it. It has always annoyed me because part of Peter Parker's charm is that he's a science dork. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, I think that the physics of 
shooting spider webs out of a little wrist <laughs> bracelet. Cameron's probably like, that can't work. That's no way. Like, I, I, I can't justify that. You know, he's very, you know, he needs everything to make sense scientifically. So at Marvel Comics wise, you skip ahead to Blade and X-Men. Yeah. That's the beginning. But Cameron could have started the Marvel era of filmmaking you know, four or five years earlier. That's kind of amazing. You imagine yeah. where that would have went. It would have um, sort of scrubbed the whole Roger Corman taint the new world pictures thing off of like all well, those cheapy deals that Stan Lee made 20 years earlier, that would have happened a lot sooner. Well, Bill, before we get to more questions, I actually have one for you because I know that you are a massive Werner Herzog fanatic. <laughs> How would you compare the hell of working on some of Herzog's more famous productions to the hell of working on James Cameron's productions and if you had to choose one of their hellacious productions to be a part of as a crew member, what would like what volcano would you jump into with either Herzog or Cameron? Oh man, that's really that's a good question. Well, I tell you, I don't think anybody drowned on a Herzog set because they were above dry land for the most part. But um, you know, there, there's something poetic about watching the opening shot of a gear of the wrath of God, seeing all those people humping up the hill with wagon wheels and cannons on their back, and you know, obviously watching the the indigenous uh, people of Peru uh, pull a steamship over a mountain in the Amazon. The, yeah, the Andes. Um, it looks to me like you are set up for sort of some sort of kind of seminal greatness working with Herzog because he's a different director. He is the man you want exploring the universe. Uh, Jim Cameron, for as much as I love his work, I don't think he's much of a poet, nor do I think he's got a poet in his soul. So I think if I'm going to ally myself with the charisma of a director worth dying for, of malaria <laughs> or dengue, I want to hang out with Kinski and just sort of like watch that kind of shit happen, like from Cobra Verde, I, I, rather than Cameron, who just sort of seems like he comes off like an Opie kind of guy. Oh, shucks. Gee whiz. Let's get back to work today. Let's give it our all. And it's like, you don't really see the passion, the fire. Cameron's not going to reveal the essential truths of life. You know, uh, my, my dad saw James Cameron one time in person. I, for, for whatever reason, Linda Hamilton and James Cameron were in Richmond, Virginia at this great pizza joint called Julian's. And my dad and stepmom were like, oh, my God, that's Linda Hamilton. Like, she, she, we, we, we love her. She's so fantastic. Like, who is that dork? She's sitting – and they sat there the whole dinner just talking trash about what a goober Linda Hamilton had. And it turns out a few years later, they're watching the Oscars like, oh, that's that goober who was wearing like acid-washed jeans and – tennis shoes <laughs> you know what you know what cameron needed and um i'm, I'm, I'm failing on trying to find a, another example a correlative of this cameron needed like a co-writer or someone in his camp like a fran walsh uh like like um and, and philippa boyens like peter jackson has he needed someone human who dug into the warmth of the human experience a little more to offset his more cold, icy blue technical aspects. Again, not that Jim Cameron needs any help from anybody, obviously, but it seems like his work would have prospered and had a much different impression if he spoke to people's humanity a little bit more rather than was just the avatar, so to speak, the avatar of action filmmaking, a guy who was this boundary pusher. And um, I mean, I, I hate to bring this up because I know Becky uh, uh, always mentioned, Becky talks about her love of like Edward Furlong, but like that whole thing nearly ruins Terminator 2 for me. And I almost feel like there's something about spelling out the effect of a kid or the lifestyle of a kid, the voice of a child really gets away from Cameron and Eddie Furlong doesn't sound 
doesn't come off very well in Terminator to me. I don't care how perfect a lot of people say he, he is at that role. And sometimes I wonder, it's like, man, if there was somebody else, somebody who was there to get the voice right, to kind of get behind the eyeballs of somebody in that position, would that work sound differently? Again, I'm not going to yeah, say Yeah, like it. if you could get the warmth of Close Encounters of the Third Kind somehow yeah. to shine through some of his films, would he have found yet another? Because I feel like of all of his movies, the end of The Abyss comes closest to that Spielberg. I, I know he was going for Kubrick, but for me, it comes across as more Spielbergian toward the end. Or maybe it's just a, his own unique thing that he's got going on. But there's a warmth to Spielberg that eludes James Cameron. How about like maybe maybe I'm even thinking of the wrong job. Maybe he needs like a Telma Schoonmacher or a Sally Menke. You know, th those people were able to dash on humanity into the work. And it's like you had these in generous creators who were incredible visual filmmakers and guys who understood story. But what Thelma would do with Marty's work is way different than what Marty would do by himself. And the same thing, Sally Menke informed Tarantino's work, sanded down some raw edges, added some rough edges to others, but other, you know, like increased the work and, and improved it in a way that we wouldn't necessarily know what it's like yeah. unless you see a long train of work without those two people. Yeah, both Scorsese and Tarantino's career would be quite different without their lifelong editors. Yeah, and maybe not, maybe the co-writer is one thing because it's like, who wrote for Spielberg? A whole hoary host of people. He had Melissa Matheson working for him and uh, I mean, so on and so forth in the golden age of, of people who were coming in and, and punching up Spielberg's work. But, um, you know, maybe it's someone like, who is it, Verna Fields, I think is really maybe the key to Jaws as much as Spielberg's filmmaking. And Telma's editing and Sally Mankey's editing. And I'm, I'm just, those are the first examples I can think of. But, I mean, that's a pretty key job. They wind up being co-conspirators. You, you make up the movie with them in the beginning and then you remake the movie in the edit booth over a Steambacker or a Moviola with these people. And maybe that would have been different rather than Cameron being a one-man show. Some, uh, you know, some critics say the same thing about Christopher Nolan, that there's a lack of humanity in his characters, you know, that they're beautiful-looking technically and and they're just so immersive in the experience that you're having, but somehow the characters just don't always connect with you as a viewer uh, on a deep level. And uh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, Nolan has at least his brother Jonah. You know, who, yeah. who they haven't been working. I think the last two or three films. Yeah, it's because Nolan had the the other Nolan's got his Westworld to, to contend with. Uh, yeah, and, and he, was a person of interest. The guy's a TV tycoon. It's like it makes sense. It's not that it was a, a fissure between the two of them that split them together, but apparently the word in the street because a friend of mine went to Georgetown with John and Nolan, and so he would say that he was definitely the more human, more humorous. Yeah. It's that American accent, man. Christopher Nolan's faking the British accent. I think he's faking the British <laughs> accent. All right. Well, well, anything else from the chat that we uh, that we overlooked while we were ranting and raving? Um, no, I think we we uh, I think we covered it. Well, John says not enough Piranha Two this morning talk. I guess there was some. I like Piranha Two, but not nearly enough. And yeah. I think, like I said, you can see the seeds of all the Cameron stuff to come. All even like Lance Hendrickson's in there. There's, yeah. I think, Piranha Two is unfairly maligned and overlooked it, it is not as good as aliens not by my country mile but it is worth a but look it, if it does a make you it makes you wonder if cameron had the budget that he needed and had complete control of that movie it could have been an incredible movie like it's like you said there's the 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 first glimpse at his auteur um filmmaking but uh, yeah, like it, an Escape from New York. You can see a little James Cameron in there yeah. with like some of the uh, some of the special effects work there. Like I love early Cameron. Or is or what is that early short that he did where you see some of the uh, technology? Xeno, Xenogenesis. Um, 
what's it xenogenesis something yeah like that, that short's really insanely yeah. cool as well i even like his music video that he did for bill paxton which is like you know very like like late 80s biker gangs and all sorts of craziness yeah. going on but yeah for me early cameron is just uh it's it's where he was really firing on all cylinders but when it comes to his collaborators i got a question for both of you guys James Horner has been a huge part of the James Cameron experience for so many of his movies. And really, like the sound of a, of a James Cameron movie and the music is quite distinctive. However, with The Abyss, you got Alan Silvestri instead. How do y'all think Alan Silvestri compares when it comes to creating that James Cameron flavor? Yeah, okay. I, I, yeah. I, I, he, so he started off with The Terminator with Brad Fidel, who, who also came back for T2 and True Lies. So he worked with Brad for three films. He did James Horner uh, for Aliens and Titanic and Avatar, and I'm assuming the four sequels will probably be James Horner as well for consistency. Uh, so yeah, he had this one other film with uh, with The Abyss with Alan Silvestri, who I think his previous film was uh, Predator, and there are a lot of similarities if you ask me between the Predator score. But yeah, there's some the military the sort of the military. Um, the kind of snare drums and yeah, there's just a lot of stuff in there that really feels quite similar, but I actually really like the, especially towards the end. I really like the sort of uplifting beats that he puts in when we, when the, when the alien craft lifts up out of the water, um, which I, first of all, I, I know it is supposed to be a craft based on the novelization, like a, a spaceship that came here a long time ago. In fact, the novel of the, of the, that Cameron worked on, with uh, with the author Orson Scott Card. Yeah, Orson Scott Card states that the mothership of the of these aliens actually resided on the dark side of the moon. So there was a lot more information. Oh, interesting. So you could see. Cameron and Orson probably, Scott Card obviously knows his way around sci-fi. He wrote right. Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead and a bunch of great sci-fi. Exactly. Novels. So there's definitely more to the mythology that never made it to the final edit of the film that we saw. More of the backstory. I always just thought they were like a unique underwater civilization when i first saw the movie i never assumed they were extraterrestrial beings <laughs> i mean who's to say what's living down there right we don't know anything about what's ha what's going on in the in the deepest trenches um and apparently you sent us uh, an interesting graphic to put <laughs> some perspective yeah. on um the fact that as you mentioned earlier that that uh, cameron went to the bottom of the the marianas tre trench and <laughs> it shows sort of like how high that, how deep that is compared to where the Titanic was and other versus other, like the Loch Ness or whatever. Right, exactly. And it, it, on this graph that you sent to us, it's, on the very very bottom in small print, it says the door that James Cameron discovered at the bottom, and he won't tell us what's inside it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I'm seeing a, an interesting comment that's worth mentioning. Um, yeah. From Ryan Linder, he says, James is great, but what is the deal with his lighting setup? I totally agree that my lighting setup sucks. I basically have two desk lamps. I, um, I'm i always a little self-conscious about being too well lit, but maybe I'm going too hard for like the Gordon Willis kind of doom and gloom. I like the idea of being in my, my cave with all my books and comics, but perhaps I could use a little more lighting on the scene. What do y'all think? Is it, am, I, am I going for too dark a mystique? With my videos, I don't know. I like it because it's the same in day and night. I, I like the uniformity of the the set design. Also, it makes you look like you're in one of those bathospheres. You know, you're you're fighting Michael Michael Bean uh, claw to claw. This is the lighting that I would use if I was like playing D and D or reading a book or whatever. So this is kind of like my my James Hancock lighting for media consumption. So it's an extension. This is not a, a set. This is my life. 
Well, but, uh, while, while mine is the uh, James Cameron blue lens filter. I like it. That. <laughs> I'm on the Benthic Explorer. I'm topside with Chris, yeah. uh, with Chris Elliott, you know. There you go. <laughs> so wait, uh, you, know, you mentioned uh, Horner. Yeah, I'm a Horner guy more than a Silvestri guy. As much as I like Silvestri's work, I think Horner's work is more, you can, Horner sounds more like an acolyte of, of Jerry Goldsmith to me, uh, almost pure. And it, it makes sense because if you listen or, to or John Williams, even the more of that camp, yeah. probably right. Yeah. Probably yeah. even more. Right. Um, if you listen to the score to Wrath of Khan, it has more cues, I think coming off of Goldsmith's, uh, motion picture soundtrack, because why would you not? Those are all the cues were built in there. However, if you back to back the soundtracks for aliens and Wrath of Khan, the cues, I mean, it's like he got paid twice for the same work. I'm not, I love, I love his work and I like both those soundtracks. It's just, they use a lot of the same cues. Yeah. The sort of metal on metal hits, that clang, 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 clang. And the, 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 the Klingon war horns, all that stuff is incredible. And they appear in both films. And I mean, I, as much as I, I couldn't tell you what, what Horner's score for like Legends of the Fall sounded like, he did a lot of work along the way that just are completely out of my purview. Um, the stuff he did with Cameron was like indelible. It's like the stuff that got into my head when I was 12 years old will stick with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, Bill, a question for you. Say I were 15, 16 year old film freak and, you know, I went and saw Avatar as a kid, had a blast and recently saw Lead a Battle Angel, thought it was tons of fun, but was totally new to this idea of James Cameron having, because in the 80s and 90s, he was a household name. He was just this giant filmmaker. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody was constantly talking about his movies. And I feel like 21st century film fans sometimes are almost dismissive and condescending when discussing them. Like, oh, all he ever does is give us avatar announcements, but never actually delivers anything. Make the case for young film freaks out there and young television freaks out there as to what the impact he made in the 80s and 90s was, but also what it was like as a young fan seeing these movies come out in real time. Well, it was a golden age. If I'm, you know, I see Aliens, I'm 11 years old in 80, 86. That's a big deal. I mean, it scared the shit out of me. I mean, I had seen Aliens before Alien, too. So Cameron's stab with the Alien was the first one that hit me. Same with me. I, yeah. I saw him, yeah. I mean, that's just the way for a whole generation of people like us. But, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it's easy to look back now and maybe get the feeling that what Cameron was was somebody who really grew up on rubber monster suits and special effect matte paintings and trick photography and things like that, Ex except that he had these gigantic, you know, Wagnerian images in his head of what it could be. And Spielberg, to some degree, had the same thing, too. And it's like, I don't know, you know, you make you, it may be worth deciding, well, what's the difference between Spielberg and Cameron? Or at least, what do you think they think the difference is between each other? Because almost, I, I bet you Cameron thinks he's got one competitor in the business, Spielberg. That's it. And I guess they, they must be about 10 or 12, 15, maybe max years apart from each other in age. So they're generationally not too far and, and apart. And not to interrupt, but if, if you watch Cameron's uh, show, I think about science fiction on the History Channel, he interviews Spielberg, and there's some tension there. You could just see it. <laughs> just, I mean, it's very subtle, but you could just tell that there's some, uh, yeah, there, there's like these two great giants in the world of sci-fi kind of comparing notes. But yeah, it, it might, it's worth Comparing box it. office. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's, right. So it's like Cameron, you know, Cameron was taking like Corman and, and you know, I'm not rehabilitating it, but deciding I'm going to do my own thing with it. This, this could be the greatest movies uh, ever made. I could make my own version of David Lean, except it's going to be about a battleship underwater and it's going to be about aliens who are blue. 
um, you know, he's, he's got this, he's got this really lofty idea, but, and yet I still feel like it's a genre take. And in some ways that's the thing that keeps me involved with Cameron, no matter how boring I might've found his last two or three films between Titanic and Avatar, there's really nothing there for me. Um, other than achievement, other than the idea that you're watching a general martial and army to battle and somehow he holds it together. I can't complain about the end result other than the taste thing. He just makes these incredible films. Um, so it's like if you were seeing him come of age, I think he's got these grand lofty ambitions where he was never going to set out to make Barry Lyndon. He didn't have that in his bones, even though he may have thought to himself, I'm just as competent a filmmaker technically as, as Kubrick is. And he's never going to make Schindler's List because I just don't think he's got that in him. I mean, the closest he came to a Schindler's List was Titanic, and Titanic was still a technical exercise in filmmaking and scale and size and all those things. And fortitude, the kind of work that one man can take on his shoulders and carry a production through. Um, I mean, if you're looking for the true Cameron, I really do think you got to see when no one was looking at him and they're looking at the work. But so I think Terminator 1, Terminator 2, Aliens, and The Abyss, I think, are really representative of, and yeah, that's not that True Lies doesn't work, not that that's not representative, not that he hasn't made, you know, I, that, those are most of his films there, essentially. But I think that he said more about himself without meaning to and changed the business in doing so. Um, and maybe that to me is going to be his golden era, um, where he was the almost most pristine, pure, undimmed by pessimism and or personal excess. If he's there now. Well, and Spielberg had that 75 to 85 really was Spielberg's golden decade, you know, Perfect. Yeah. a lot of, you know, sort of unevenness after that point. So, well, you uh, mentioned true lies. Uh, I'm a big fan of True Lies. I don't like it as much as The Abyss, but it is enjoyable. But like The Abyss, True Lies and The Abyss are really friggin' difficult to get your hands on and actually see. Yeah, so Adam, true. what can you tell us about the rumors, the mystique, or the all, all the various BS surrounding this possible 4K or 8K Abyss Blu-ray that might be coming away? Like separate the fact from the fiction and yeah, to <laughs> why we don't have these movies and when we might be seeing them. So first of all, Cameron has been teasing this for years now. I mean, I think when he he first teased it when he was promoting the 3D release of T2 for the anniversary a few years ago, he first said, yeah, yeah, it's coming, it's coming. Um, but as, as, as recent as like a week ago, he actually responded to a tweet by none other than Ryan Johnson and, and, um, and Ryan, um, what's his name? Um, Deadpool. Um, Brian Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, yeah, I'm just brain fart. They were having some weird on Twitter conversation about why True Lies and The Abyss weren't on, uh, weren't available on uh, on Blu-ray. And Cameron responded to uh, Ryan Reynolds saying, "It's on my to-do list, guys. Promise, I'm working on it." So he's well aware of the demand from not just us, you know, geeks, but the the uh, the celebrities and actors out there. Also, just in terms of solidifying your legacy, if an entire generation can't see yeah. two of your best movies, it's not like he has some huge output. It's not like he has 50 movies to his name. He's got a handful of movies. So yeah. two of his best are very hard to find. So, he, so he, the good thing is that um, tr they did announce about uh, at the end of March, I would say, there was an article that the, the sound uh, or sound mixer and color color timer that has been working on this project did did share something a progress report saying that it's it's happening or we're working on it um there hasn't though been any confirmation whether the special edition will be included 
These are all open-ended questions, but I would imagine that it would have to be. Um, at first, I was wor I, my initial fear was that the special edition being produced in 1992, that the, the effects were done in, in standard definition for a primarily standard definition market. But the fact that it did have a short-lived theatrical release means they must have done a, a negative cut, you know, a, a final version on 35 millimeter that could stand up to uh, a 4 or 8K scan. Uh, but my feeling is perhaps the visual effects didn't quite up-res properly and that maybe they need to rework them a little bit to try to make them look pro you know, exactly the same, but at a resolution that won't look um, pixelated at, you know, at an 8K or But I feel like resolution. please don't be got 100,000 people on the payroll right now that can crank that <laughs> yeah. shot out in an yeah. afternoon. <laughs> I know, I know. Like how many crew members are working on these four Avatar sequels? I mean, just like somebody take a day off from Avatar I know. and just finish Friggin' the abyss. Well, well Adam, Adam, I'm yeah. not a, I'm not a wonk like you, but um, especially about film. No, I, I mean that as a tribute to your skill set. But I, first of all, I saw the 35 mil print was shown at the Quad uh, oh, in, in. Yeah. Um, it was a shitty, beat up print of the director's edition, special edition. Yeah. That was November of 2017. The Cohen Media Group, I think, owned a couple of prints of it, so it was a real treat. Even if it was in bad shape because I'd never seen the director's cut. I mean, yeah. in, in theater, but it was awesome. So I know there are definitely negative cuts of the thing out there. Um, but the process, man, I looked into this when I was putting that video together into seeing how far along it was. Like all things Cameron does, he is agonizingly slow. He has that, uh, what was that? The, who, who, who was Kubrick's guy from Filmmaker? Um, oh, Leon Vitale. Kubrick. Yeah, so yeah. He's, he's got that like, Leon Vitale type. I mean, I don't know if he's got anybody to do the actual work, but the idea of like scrutinizing the process and making sure that's why he just can't get one of those hundred thousands of people on the job because Cameron's got to do it himself. Yeah. With his big fucking hard pig head. And the transfer that I saw, it was going to be a wet gate AK transfer. And I was, I had to go on YouTube to see what the fuck is a, a wet gate transfer. And it's this painstaking thing where you're quite literally running the film through what, like a saline broth or something, Adam, have you ever seen yeah. this before? Yeah, I have. I, a friend of mine owns a company that has what has one of those machines and it, it's so slow, the process frame by frame to, to do these properly. And again, if you're doing an 8K or 6K, it's even slower, um, which is smart to do because then you don't have to do it again down the road when we get, well, the human eye can't so, even like perceive that yeah, kind of resolution. The only reason to do an AK is for preservation purposes to yeah. make sure that every little bit of information that was captured on that film is digitized and available for whatever reason. Like if you were to blow it up to an IMAX screen or something, that you could do it and not lose any. So it doesn't bit look of like your DVD yeah. on your TV the other night. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if, as I told them, I watched uh, the special edition DVD from 2000. Now we're looking at that's this is almost 20 years ago, and DVD is a 25-year-old format, so it's a standard definition 720 by 480 resolution, blown up to nearly 4,000 uh, in terms, uh, you know, horizontal in picture. It, it's like a postage stamp, you know, <laughs> originally being blown up, and you just could see so much blocking, artifacting. It was painful to watch, and, and in a way, I'm hoping it doesn't come out too soon on Blu-ray now because I'll want to watch it again. And I just spent three hours watching it on <laughs> on SD, so I, I need a little time before I can watch it again. 
Yeah. Hey, a quick interruption. I need to offer yeah. a correction. Earlier, Stephen Simpson has been very nice to hang out in the chat room this whole time. He's a massive uh, film score buff. I referred to him as Stephen Thompson, who is a mixed martial arts fighter who fights in the uh, welterweight division. So I don't know if it's like an insult to, but I did want to correct the name. But also, Stephen Simpson, hunt him down on Twitter. He has a very cool podcast about gaming, and he was recently on Wrong Real talking about film scores. So I just did want to offer that one quick correction as we start getting toward the uh, the kind of the closing stretch of this of this broadcast. I, I did want to mention just for the geeky people out there, one thing that you know, as I used to work for Apple, and I have a background in technology. I went to a technology school. And uh, I wanted to just talk about the pseudopod and the technical aspects of it and what makes it so incredible because they really did have to uh, create software that didn't exist to make this. They had to build um, custom programming uh, and it revolutionized the industry as, as we've said. It, from, it led to T2, which led to Jurassic Park. Uh, and again, watch Scurry's video, his essay, because it, it goes into all this as well. But it's only 75 seconds of screen time. And that 75 seconds is 16 different CG shots. So to create that, those 75 seconds, they had to do everything in a computer. Their entire computer system in ILM at the time had a maximum capacity of 900 megabytes. So they had to render these images for, for 75 seconds off 900 megabytes. I mean, this is, this is like the first iPod that people bought back in 2003 had <laughs> that had five gigabytes on it. And they had only 900 megabytes to do this entire, you know, sequence, 75 second sequence of the pseudopod. Off an Apple II CI, exactly. Yeah. And, and another first for this film, it's the very first film in history to use the program Photoshop version 0.67. And it was the first film to ever, and it was one of the guys just said, let me try. Let me try this new program called Photoshop. And it turned out to be an incredible tool for them. And since then, it's like one of the most important programs in, uh, in the filmmaking and photography industries. So it's, it really, uh, on more ways than you can count this film, uh, even if you don't like the movie, you have to respect what it did but for the, the artistic result of those special effects shots are for me, they work really well. Like the shot of the ship rising up out of the trench and it's, you know, in contrast to the silhouette standing there, there's such an incredible sense of wonder. It's like, it's not on the level of like the little boy opening the door and close encounters and seeing all the lights, but it's getting pretty close. And I, I really think that's one of James Cameron's most iconic shots of just the scientist, explorer, engineer, all suited up, standing on the edge of oblivion and something totally otherworldly rises up before her. It's just absolutely killer. But then again, of course, just the pseudopod going through the ship, everybody's acting opposite some stupid like tube of like cardboard and socks and they're like yeah. oh, oh oh my god like with such awe and wonder on their faces the actors do such a brilliant job of selling what they didn't really know like really how it's going to turn out in the final and they, and they didn't know how to even do this how to composite it and see they, they had a guy on set take that like thousands of photo high resolution you know camera photographs of every part of that set in those shots so they could stitch them together and put this, you know, this object, this CG creature in, on top of it. So it was just such a, uh, like a brave new, you know, bold new frontier that they were embarking on. And, you know, as Cameron said, though, in one of the interviews, if it didn't work, he could cut that scene out and it wouldn't really 
change the movie, the dramatic thrust of the film. It's an incredible scene, but it wouldn't make or break the movie come, come Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park if the CG didn't work in those things, those films. Those the movie would have collapsed like a house of cards. Yeah. All right, we have a quick question here from Adrian Mendoza. I, I, I remember hearing about this, but I, I don't quite know the full story. So what are your opinions on the T2 being re-edited and airbrushing Robert Patrick's genitals and replacing the stuntman's face to Arnie's face? Uh, any strong feelings about, was that for the T2 3D yeah. re-release? Yep, that's that's when they- what's, this, what's the deal with Robert? Uh, Patrick, there's ball. a there's a short scene when he first appears in front of you know materializes. That's in front right. Of that you see a little newt sack hanging down. down <laughs> with one knee up. He, you remember he pulls the gun out and goes, you know, and cocks it. Um, there is a like shadowy resemblance to what would be a you know his genitals. His codpiece. It, it's his very hard to see, and it's kind of a pretty wide. Long but in, in 8K, you never know. You can get no. some, <laughs> some some good details. Yeah, and the other, the, the other, so you know that that was like unnecessary in my opinion. That who cares? Unless Robert Patrick was very adamant that he not want his <laughs> genitals to be seen anymore. But uh, the the other shot, it didn't really bother me. I I always actually kind of hated the fact that I could tell that Schwarzenegger. Was not is that for the bike that stunt going yeah. off with the truck coming behind? Right with yeah, yeah. yeah no, exactly. you could totally tell it wasn't Arnie. At it the just time, was such it. a bad stunt double that anyone that watched it more than the first time, you saw it every time. The first time I didn't notice it because we're so enamored in the the moment. Yeah. But at every every viewing, every subsequent viewing, I'm like, oh, that's so not Arnold. So I don't mind that they they do it all the time now. They CG faces over, you know, uh, other actors' bodies. So and de aging. When you see actors in the yeah. 60s looking like they're 30. Yeah. For me, it's like, I love Nicole Kidman. So if she wants to be young and beautiful forever, go to it. I mean, and yeah. Aquaman, she looked like she was like 25. <laughs> you know, you know what? To, to dial back for a second, um, when you were talking about actors responding to things that weren't on set, um, Metrograph here in New York City a couple of years ago had uh, the, um, I forget which version of it, the Close Encounters, uh, they were showing... I, I guess it's the director's cut, the extended edition. I forget what yeah, there's a couple did. different competing versions floating. Yeah, there's at least there. three of them. There was a TV cut, there was theatrical, but it was the one I think that is more or less regarded as the 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 you know the biggest cut without the shitty ending where where Dick Dreyfus gets on the thing. Anyway, Bob Balaban was there and he came and he talked about it afterwards. This is great because you know Balaban lives in New York. I asked him a question. I said, I know for a fact that those those puppets weren't done you know, when you guys were shooting uh, on the soundstage, it's like, how did you somehow respond to that? How did you gen generate this thing where you're looking with awe? I mean, Close Encounters is just filled with all these reverse shots of people standing with their jaws pretty much agape, slack at something that, you know, and we know what they're looking at because we see the Carl Rambaldi puppets and it's like earned. But getting actors to do that, to see it's like, hey, guys, you got to trust me on this one. This thing where, you know, what'd you say, James? It was like a tube and some socks and some cardboard. Somehow like that's going to be a piece of majestic filmmaking that, you know, I guess we just have to dope into the camera right now where we're all looking like this is something that we can't even imagine how beautiful this is, but it's like, it's going to pay off later on. Yeah. That, that is, you know, it's happened a few times. It used to happen with prosthetics and, and, and practical and optical stuff, but then doing it for a special yeah, I mean, like predator, removing Jean-Claude Van Damme from the film entirely and starting over from scratch. 
But I mean, like, think about Natalie Portman reacting to a green guy holding a tennis ball over his head in, in all those prequel movies. And it's like, you saw it done badly. You saw it done well. The difference in doing it well is night and day. And granted, they weren't bored by responding to things that weren't there. So it was easier to sell those actors on a novelty. So watching Ed Harris, and, and I was going to say, at the end of the movie, too, because we haven't really talked about the... Um, you know, the, the, the spaceship sequence where Ed Harris is inside the two walls of water watching the transmissions. I had, for some reason, thought that those jellyfish, uh, you know, aliens were also CG, but those were all practical as well. Um, they actually made these big gooey puppets that they put on the set. It's like, oh, that's awesome, too. So you have this movie where Ed Harris is actually able to respond. You know, like the amount of practical stuff they did on this was also insane in addition to you know, really inventing visual effects at the yeah. same time. But it was just, yeah, it was just, it was this time when I love it because it was this time when they were doing breakthroughs with visual, with CG effects, but they were implementing every other type of special effect technique known to known at that point as well, whether it was miniature submersibles or, you know, the, the ben, Benthic Explorer was a giant, like 45 foot model that they, well, you know, I never knew that. It was so good, right? <laughs> yeah, it it's looked, perfect. It looked like a real thing. Yeah. Um, but that that's a, just a great example all the way through to like Jurassic Park where it was a mixture of CG and animatronic and life-size dinosaurs. Like they just, depending on the shot, they did what they had to do. And I like that. I feel like that's a much more challenging but much more – uh, it, it delivers the goods better than today where they just go with, oh, we'll fix it in post. We'll do it all in post. We'll make everything CG after the fact. And to me that, it, yes, maybe it has some, uni, you know, sort of there's a uniformity to it as a result. But if it's it's not, though, usually uniform because most of these big blockbuster movies, including the Marvel ones, they farm out the work to like seven different special effects houses. And it doesn't always look good you know it's not always consistent and that's something that always bothered me at least with the full cg uh movies that are out today mm -hmm. hey i'm just taking a quick notice in the yeah. chat we've got both uh sky wingfield is back as well as the great martin kessler check out his podcast Flixwise canada which he's been nice enough to have me on and he's also on the most recent episode of wrong reel talking about valerian barovchik which is quite a different topic from uh <laughs> james cameron but if you have a taste for if you're broad-minded and seek um outrageous entertainment then definitely hunt down the films of valerian barovchik but shout out to all those guys in the chat who have been so uh loyal to come back on wrong reel so many times Adam, did you see um, the, the the Robert Rodriguez movie? I, I forget if that had come up here. Oh, well, Lead a uh, Battle Angel? Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, I thought, yeah. I saw it up at the uh, 42nd Street AMC, and, and the special effects were – you had to sweep my jaw off the floor after the film. Right. Yeah, I, I tried to go twice, but, like, things conspired against me. I have a five-year-old, and it's and my wife is a film editor. So she works crazy hours. She doesn't work for James Cameron, but she has edited for Brett Ratner and for Michael Bay. Uh, for commercials <laughs> that they've directed. Yeah. Some of the most horrible men in the business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I sympathize with her. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I'm constantly doing the, uh, uh, you know, the daddy daycare in the evening. So it's getting harder and harder for me to get out to a movie, uh, unless it's a kid's movie, which, frankly, most of them are horrible. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, that was my. Well, when they're good, they're good, you know. Yeah, my question was kind of about because I'm sure that I don't know how much I didn't see it, but um, I yeah. James, I did watch your review, so I think that makes me an expert on the topic. <laughs> um, I I wonder how much of that was Cameron, how much of that was Rodriguez, and if it's a clue in terms of what kind of filmmaking you are going to get, 
whether it's technical competency and not only that, but the, you know, one of the pitfalls of a guy like Cameron to me, especially if I'm, I've already seen him dancing on that razor thin line between humanity and ice cold technician. You know, if you rely on doing everything in post more and more, I feel like you get away from the, the tenuous hold that he had on human chemistry to begin with. So if he is going to take work and farm it out and do blue people and just assume that you don't need anything, you know, you don't need practicals. You can just do everything with stereotypic cameras and actors just pretending, you know, that there's eye lines on set. I think that augurs pretty grimly for a guy who, you know, isn't necessarily prospering the further he gets away. Who from do you think gets it right when it comes to motion capture and the humanity of the characters? Because obviously there are a lot of people out there like Andy Serkis who are, you know, on the vanguard of this kind of, kind of technology. Like who right now is a filmmaker and or performer technician who you feel like finds the heart within all this technique? Well, I thought that a revelation was uh, Matt Reeves's. um, um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. That was the second one. That movie was just fucking. It's untalked about. I because mean, Dawn Rise. Well, I get, war. They, they, war. That war. Was war. Yeah, the Dawn and Rise thing was such a stupid, yeah, no, short sightedness on that. <laughs> but Rise, Rise was incredible, and I think that Ape trilogy. It's like, yeah, I didn't love the third one as much as, but that's the third one had some incredible performances. But that second one, the synthesis between Andy Serkis as an actor, Andy Serkis as a consultant, and Matt Reeves as apparently a listening, hungry filmmaker who wanted to put a stamp on something. I don't know why we're not talking about it today because I think that Apes trilogy is great. I think that is the dark night of that Apes trilogy. They did things with performance and motion capture that no one else has ever done. And the thing is, it wasn't just Andy Serkis because Toby Kebbell, who is otherwise an undistinguished actor in Hollywood, he played Doctor Doom in um, um, what's it, the, the Fantastic Four fracas, the Imbroglio. Josh, uh, the, Josh Franks. Josh Franks, yeah, exactly. He's the guy from Ben Hur. And um, yeah, he was. And also, he gets raped by Val Kilmer and Alexander. Oh, he is pretty. But he he <laughs> did it in, in, a, in a Black Mirror episode. Yeah, yeah, the, the complete yeah. history of us. Yeah, yeah. But he did an incredible job as the bad guy, Koba. And it's like that yeah. was. That, you didn't just have one fluky actor who is an opsimath at, at doing motion capture like Circus. You had two or three. And Steve yeah. Zahn did a great job in War. On top of that, so I, I, you know, I could go. You could go back to, you know, I think. Um, Jackson hasn't necessarily comported himself well after the original, you know, three Lord of the Rings movies. But well, those are mortal engines is the definition of every problem you're describing about the absence of heart and humanity and soul in amidst all this special effects nonsense. It's like that, that's a bunch of technique in search of a story. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw Frighteners for the first time at Alamo a couple of days ago. And I'd never seen, you know, I said I'd never seen it before. And I was like holding on to it like, I'm sure this is going to, you know, this is going to redeem itself. And it didn't pay off. I, I just didn't enjoy it. It was it like, has fun bits, but it's that, uneven. It's not nearly it, as good as like his early 90s Bananas flicks. Did they screen the director's cut version or the original theatrical? I'm just curious. Because I, good question. I think it was theatrical. I don't think it was okay, director's cut. There is a director's cut that's on Blu-ray that I, I found to be a, a, a modestly better version of the movie. Yeah, y'all are getting me excited uh, about a possible live stream with the rise and fall of Peter Jackson. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I... I mean, there was a period <laughs> where he was my favorite filmmaker, one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. Like right around the time of like Return of the King coming out, I was like, this guy, he can do everything. He can do Meet the Feebles. He can do Heavenly Creatures. Undead. He can do Heavenly Creatures, like art film, crazy puppets, gore, splatterfest, fake documentaries, like Forgotten Silver. Like I was like, he is the most versatile, crazy, creative guy alive. And now I outright hate him. 
like despise <laughs> his films. I'm like openly antagonistic, but you never know what the future might hold because that um, that World War One restoration documentary. Fantastic. It was yeah. one of my favorite movies of last year. Yeah. So maybe Peter Jackson's going to rise I, again. I think I'm the one person and you'll hate me for it that actually had fun watching the Hobbit films, not as an adaptation, <laughs> not, not as an adaptation <laughs> of the Hobbit because I love the book, but I just love being immersed in the world of middle earth and i just I, I look at it as its own thing it's separate thing and if you don't if this if you didn't know anything about middle earth or the hobbit or lord of the rings i think people would view those films very differently they're 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 just sword and sorcery epics and it's because of our preconceived notion of what it should be and i get that it's not what it should be but if you can separate yourself from yeah, that, give me the rankin bass cartoon yeah any day. That, that's a far better interpretation of the book, no question. But I just I enjoyed them. Once I realized it wasn't going to be faithful in any way and it wasn't going to be a proper um, adaptation of, of the book I so love, I just sort of distanced myself from it and just got a let it happen, you know, kind of let <laughs> <laughs> stop stop with the kicking you know i, I yeah. know we're, we're getting we're getting away from cameron here but i, yeah. I it made me think uh, you know you mentioned jackson this is the thing i've stuck with jackson for a while because um around the time they were cooking up the hobbit you know um guillermo del toro was originally supposed to be the guy doing it and yeah. they were co fresh off pan's labyrinth and, and he they, was they were co-conspiring on uh, co-conspiratoring i don't know what the, the term is on co-conspiring co-conspiring thank you yeah. yes uh they were they were talking about doing pacific rim and hobbit they were all happening at the same time and the thing is is that it, it almost unfortunately went the way you would have expected where peter jackson decided to do the hobbit movies and Del Toro winds up doing Pacific Rim, and it's like, you know, actually, I don't like either of those movies. I really don't like Pacific Rim. I think it's just a bomb to me. It's just boring. Battle of Hong Kong's fun, but that's like a little bit. But it's like, what would it have been like creatively as an experiment if they had flopped and each of them had made the other's pictures? And it's like, give me Del Toro, Hobbit, give me Peter Jackson, Pacific Rim, then I think we're having a different yeah, conversation. If Del Toro, yeah. Hobbit had had the imagination and like the soaring ambition of Pan's Labyrinth, it would have been a... A remarkable achievement. Yeah, well, but, but it's like Jackson had nothing new to say about Middle Earth. And it's like, well, you know, he started it, but give it to Del Toro to take over and add his own thing. So far, we haven't seen any other directors. I make it a movie. You don't need nine hours yeah. of filler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's another topic for another day. So as we start drawing things down to a close, I just want to give you a chance to plug, promote anything you're working on, your social media. We'll start with you, Adam. Um, thanks also for the awesome thumbnails and thanks for being such an amazing guest. And we'll definitely have to do more of these. But where can people find the great Adam Rakoff if they want to talk more? Well, I don't know where they can find the great Adam Rakoff, <laughs> but you can find me at Twitter, <laughs> on Twitter, at Adam Rakoff, all one word. Uh, yeah. No hyphens, no <laughs> underscores. <laughs> uh, that's my only social media presence. So feel free to, if you want to follow me, I, I try to follow everybody back if I, if I remember to do so. So Beautiful. Uh, we can continue any of this discussion offline. Excellent. Mr. Scurry, where can people find uh, the wonderful things you're doing these days, both on YouTube and iTunes? Now with more Scurry, believe me. Yeah. So I'm at William Scurry on Twitter. I'm there all the goddamn time. We're having a good time. We continue this over there. And all you guys know that because you're pretty much, like I say, guys, you know what I mean? Gender neutral. Um, yeah, we have a good time on We Twitter. are all we're unsullied good. on we, this channel. We're, we're, look <laughs> at my, my gray worm, everybody. Yeah. And so my podcast is I Don't Get It. 
podcast uh, uh, no at Noah and Bill show. Uh, follow that. Um, I do Daily Cobra Commander six days a week. Every morning about 8 a.m. that pops up. Um, and, uh, you know, I show up on different podcasts. In fact, I believe I'm scheduled to show up uh, in Cardiff relatively uh, relatively soon uh, on, and on an undisclosed um, secret, top secret project out of Wales, too. Very nice. Well, once again, just a huge shout out to everybody in the channel, like whether it's The Pink Smoke with John Cribbs or Flixwise Canada or Film 89 or, uh, oh shit, Stephen Simpson. I am blanking on the name of his podcast. I've got it right here. Stephen Simpson, his podcast is Pop Culture Gamers. So everybody who showed up, we can't thank you enough for the support. And if people, whoops, my podcast is now playing on my iPad. But if you want to... Subscribe, that would be awesome. And if you want to hit the like button, that's always very helpful. And you can find me on Twitter at Colbrax. And coming up, I've got a couple different live streams that I would like to do. Nothing concrete, but the goal is to start doing these once a week and then slowly expand from there. But can't thank you enough for all the support. Thanks for the super chat donations. And we'll be back at y'all in the near future. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and... Hello.